Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Helena Costa. How are you doing today, Helena? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. So tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Um, you know, what kind of hobbies do you have outside of studying whales? Right. So uh, I am Portuguese. So I was born in a in a very small town in northern Portugal. So I grew up quite close to the coast. And I remember that growing up, I really wanted to be a, a marine biologist, um, as so many kids do, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um then growing up, I my interests got a bit more broad, and I just really knew that I wanted to have a job working with with animals. So that led me to go into vet school. Um, so I moved to to Lisbon uh, to take my degree, and then I spent like five or six years um, studying to be a vet. And during these years, I just really wanted to explore what what paths there was within uh, veterinary medicine that would allow me to to work with wildlife. Uh, So then I ended up doing some different volunteering, um, working in different uh, wildlife rehabilitation centers and working with uh, different research groups. And I guess that was when I came to Norway for the first time um, to to work with a research group in, in, in Tromso. Uh, and that was where I developed my my master's thesis. So I ended up doing my master's thesis, working with these viruses uh, that affect seals. Um, and that was when I kind of came back to the to the world of marine mammals, and I kind of figured out that I would really like to to work with with these animals. 
so yeah, then I came back to Portugal. I still worked a year as a normal vet with dogs and cats, but I still had the idea of coming back to Norway and uh, coming back to, to the world of marine mammals. So eventually I got this, this position to, to do my PhD in Northern Norway. And, and then I came back here and that's how I ended up here again. Very cool. Um, so we're here to discuss your recent publication, Blowing in the Wind, using a consumer drone for the collection of humpback whale blow samples during the Arctic polar nights. So tell us how you came to conduct this study. What prompted answering this research question? Yeah, so when I first started my PhD, so we were, I was discussing with my supervisor the way we should go. Mm -hmm. um, and we ended up realizing how little is known about the, the pathogens and the infectious diseases that affect whales um, in the North Atlantic, or let's say uh, in Norway, but generally in the North Atlantic, there is not that much being researched on it or, um, or published on it. And at the same time here in Norway, it's just such an amazing place to research these animals. Um, for example, there is a region here in Northern Norway that every winter we have an aggregation of hundreds of whales. So you see so many humpbacks, orcas. Uh, this year we had a couple of fin whales. So it's just this amazing place um, that the animals come quite close to the shore, to the coast. Um, and you just have this amazing opportunity to sample them. So we thought that would be really um, a cool project to, to basically sample these animals during this time of the year and study the, the pathogens that they are being exposed to. Um, but then after that, we, we were thinking, okay, but how do you actually study this on a whale? Because with a seal or with any, any animal, really, you can capture it and... Um, take a blood sample and then release it. But with a whale, you cannot really, there is no way to collect a blood sample. So then we found out about this team in the US that was using a drone to collect a respiratory sample um, from whales. So basically every time the whale is breathing, there is like this column of air um, and it's just a mix of the salt water and um, of, of cells that come from their respiratory tract and it also includes the the bacteria and the viruses that they have on the respiratory tract um, and you can just fly a, a drone through it and collect a bit of that sample and then you can use the sample to, to screen for for pathogens or for other things um, so we decided to give it a try but the problem for us is that we just live in a very challenging uh, area and this would be during a very challenging time of the year because uh, the whales gather here in winter and this is the arctic so it means that we have no sun rising we have very little light and there is a lot of wind there is a lot of swell so we knew that we're, we were going to have very challenging um, conditions um, so we decided to do this pilot study where we, we would go there for a week and we would try this method um, and, and see if we could actually make it work. So in the end of the week, we actually got some samples. So we, we got a successful fieldwork 
and we decided to just publish our experience with it. So the idea is just to publish everything we learn from this experience to, to help other researchers that want to use this method in similar conditions as well. Absolutely. So walk us through kind of the methodology and how you did conduct this experiment. So the idea is that, uh, so in my case, I didn't have access to, to anyone that could uh, build a drone on purpose for, for this. Um, I didn't have anyone with that knowledge or uh, I didn't have the funding for it. So the idea with this method is just to make it as simple as possible um, for anyone, anywhere and just reproduce it. Mm -hmm. So we just use a normal consumer drone, a normal DJI that anyone can buy. Um, and we just minimally adapt it. So we, we put some Velcro on it, on the top, and then we Velcro some sterile, sterile Petri dishes on top. And in the moment of the flight, we just open the Petri dishes. We need to be careful and use um, gloves and masks. Um, but then we open the Petri dishes, we, we send the drone out, and then we, we, we spot the whale and we try to, to collect a sample of the blow and then we return to the boat. Very cool. So why is this sort of data collection important and how can it benefit our understanding of wildlife? So I think one of the coolest things about this is it's completely non-invasive, right? So you don't touch the whale, you barely bother it. So this is also a bit species dependent. I'm working with humpback whales and they, they do not react at it at all. So during the flight, you, 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 you have like the camera, right? So you can observe the whale's reaction and almost 100% of the times, the whale just keeps doing what it was doing. It doesn't change like breeding behavior or the surface interval. It doesn't dive deeper. Uh, it's completely unbothered. So that's that's exactly what you want as a researcher to not bother the animal you are sampling. And at the same time, it allows our boat to be kept at a bigger distance. Uh, for example, if you compare to biopsy sampling, which of course is also very, very um, important, but if you're compared to it with the biopsy sample, you have to have the boat quite close to the animal for you to be able to, to collect the sample. And with the blow sampling and using the drone, you can have the boat um, hundreds of meters uh, away from, from the animal. Uh, and then of course, the animal is not being disturbed by, by the sound of the boat as well. Um, yeah, and then it's just like a sample that you can use for many different things. In my case, I'm, I'm using it for, for screening of pathogens, but you can also use it to extract hormones. You can also use it to um, extract DNA and identify individuals, genetic studies, and it's like an, uh, a, a field that is being researched more and more. So probably many other um, uses for this sample type will, will be coming up in the future. Definitely. That's really interesting. Have you found um, any like noteworthy pathogens in the whales? So at this point, uh, I mean, the sampling collection um, uh, part still, 
So I, I had this field work, this pilot study to experiment with the method. So we collected some samples there. And then um, I was lucky enough for my project to kind of uh, grow. And I had the opportunity to go to other um, points of the whales migration. So while this started in Norway, I also had field work in Iceland, and I will also have field work in Cape Verde, which is the breeding grounds of the whales. So then I will be able to use this method and to collect samples in different points of their migration. Um, and it's been very cool because like this, I can kind of work with other teams and, and show my method and um, eventually if they, they want to use it as well. So in Cape Verde, I will be uh, working with a, a team from the UK that wants to learn how to use this method. So I'll be there kind of teaching. So that's really cool. And then the, the lab part of the, the pathogen screening is starting now as well, <laughs> but I don't have the results yet. Okay, very cool. Um, yeah, we've kind of had a theme. We had another guest before you who we were talking about the use of drones, uh, but we've kind of had a theme of drones on this season of um, using them for research and um, being able to better understand the animals. So that's really interesting. Um, do you know when you might have the results from the pathogen samples? Yeah, so this project will run one year almost two years more. Okay. Uh, so it's an ongoing process, but this year still, I hope to start having some results of the first screenings. Um, and yeah, uh, just to comment on what you said, like drones can be used for so many things in research, uh, not only blow sampling, but I've been working with people that have, have been using them for body condition or for um, assessing behavior. So. You can also use these methods to and use it for some different things. So at the same time that you're collecting blow, you can also record a video and look at the, the animal's behavior, or you can uh, fly higher and, and look at the body condition. So yeah, it's very cool. And it's been really interesting to see um, the new uses for, for drones in, in marine mammals. Absolutely. So I know you said you took the use of commercial drones. Do you think the type of drone makes a difference when studying the wildlife? Yeah, I have to say that if you do have the means to create a drone specifically for this, for this I think go for it because of course you can do it waterproof and more resistant. The idea with my project was that I didn't have access to it. So we decided to use a consumer drone and make it a really easy method for anyone. Um, but if you do, if you are going to buy a consumer drone, I think you should have in mind um, first the size of the drone and uh, the resistance to the wind. The size of the drone is mostly to not bother the animals because of course you will be flying like what two meters above them mm -hmm. uh, for for a brief for a brief uh, seconds, but there is noise associated to it and you don't really want to disturb the animal. So if you have a huge drone, then it will be very resistant to the wind, but then it will be making a lot of noise and potentially bothering the animal much more. Mm -hmm. So we decided to go for a smaller size drone um, to not bother the animal. And also to, you know, you are working in a boat, so it makes it easy to, to handle it when it's quite small. 
Um, so I think it would be important to look at the, the size of the drone. Um, and then on the other side, it cannot be too small. Otherwise, it won't be uh, resistant to the wind and it will be more likely to fly away. Um, and in my case, the in the in, in our fieldwork site can be very, very windy. Um, so you need to find the balance between being resistant enough and um, at the same time being small enough to, to not disturb the animals. Definitely. Well, that's really awesome that you guys found a way to make it a little bit more accessible because I know research can definitely be expensive. Um, so that's great. Are there any other topics that you are particularly passionate about in regards to either just conservation in general or cetaceans? Yeah, I've always been very interested in wildlife rehabilitation and um, rescue mm -hmm. uh, and also on uh, pathology. So that's something that I'm not working right now, but it comes, I guess, from my vet training. I'm just so interested in that. And yeah, I would love to, to kind of be able to work both in research and continue doing what I'm doing now, but also have more hands-on um, with uh, rehabilitation or rescue of, of marine mammals, but of wildlife in general, I think is very interesting. And Definitely. here in Norway, we don't really have a stranding network in place, mm -hmm. um, but I, so as I mentioned, I, I come from Portugal and we have a very interesting stranding network um, team there. So basically every time there is a stranding, you have uh, all these, like this team ready to go there and sample the, the animal or to help if, if the animal stranded alive. And I think that would be something that I would be very interested in, in working on here in Norway or establishing here in Norway as well. Because Definitely. you can really learn a lot from, from deceased animals as well. Absolutely. Um, what kind of things can we learn from these animals? From whales in general. Well, from like whales that you would potentially rehabilitate. Yeah, so large animals, it will always be very hard to rehabilitate, right? Um, but from, from imagine a smaller species that, that strand, um, you know, it gives you an amazing opportunity to sample an animal that normally you, you don't have access to. So you can, for example, sample blood, which is something that on the, on the ocean you cannot do. Uh, and you can, you can even do stuff like ultrasounds and uh, collect a blow sample, much more controlled that you don't need to have a drone. So uh, it's really interesting to have this opportunity to have such a close contact with an animal when they are under rehabilitation. But of course this works for Definitely. species like seals or dolphins, but it wouldn't work for a huge whale. <laughs> you cannot really uh, have it in captivity and rehabilitate it. Yes, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, definitely logistically very challenging. Yeah, but still from a stranded uh, dead whale, you can collect so many samples. So I think it's super important to have like a stranding network in place that uh, in the moment that an animal is detected that you can go there fast and collect the samples um, before, uh, before it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, we have a, a stranding network here in Monterey. Um, and I have a friend who does a, a lot of like necropsies and she's gotten a lot of really insightful information through that. Um, yeah. And whales are hard to study because they're like out in the ocean. I mean, it's depending mm -hmm. on the species, they could be hard to locate. And then, you know, if you mm -hmm. want to study any sort of morphology, you know, it's hard to come across dead animals. So, yeah, I think they are so challenging to study. It makes it fun in a way that you need to create these new techniques, flying drones, and yeah, it makes it <laughs> it makes you push for your creativity. But yeah, in the end, in the end of the day, they are quite challenging animals to to study because you know they come to the surface a few times and then they can just disappear for for months and you don't see the same individual. There is a white humpback whale here in the North Atlantic. And I mean, it's been around for years and it has been sighted a couple of times. And I mean, it's a white whale and still it's it's been so hard to, to see it. So yeah, these animals can just disappear and you don't see them for, for ages. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, we um, just spotted, well, not me, but some people in the Monterey Bay just spotted a Pacific right whale, which is incredibly rare like I think they've been spotted like maybe 20 times since like the 50s and mm -hmm. I think they they got to look at it for like 15 minutes and then it was gone gone it's it's insane sometimes you have a whale next to you and then it dives for you think it will be 10 minutes and then you'll side the blow again and then you never see it again it's insane they can be so fast and then they can just dive and be out of there and you just lose it Never so know. yeah yes they can definitely be challenging to study so one question I always ask people is what can we learn from the whales what we can learn from the whales uh maybe that's your most common answer I don't know but I think their resilience is just I think we can just really learn about how how resilient they are I mean they they've been until very recently they were massively hunted and nowadays they still suffer with so many uh, threats and uh, stressors and still you see the population some of the populations are stabilizing and some of them are uh, increasing uh, and doing these like super long migrations uh, despite of all these obstacles I think yeah we have a lot to learn on their resilience and maybe I can make it more related to my to my project since I work with breath and their blow I think we need to learn how to keep breathing under under this all the all, all those hardships so I think one of my favorite sounds is actually uh, the whale breath I think it's just some of my favorite moments on the field is just to be on the boat and there is no one else around and we can just turn our turn off our mo motor and the only the only sound you hear is like the whale just breathing like these deep breaths in and out. Uh, yeah, I think I really like it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I like that answer. I haven't gotten the breathing answer yet. I have gotten <laughs> that's a new one. So I like that. I think you should put in the end of the podcast just 30 seconds of whales breathing. <laughs> I think it's just such a nice sound. <laughs> I will let I'll, I'll try to see if I can get some audio of whales breathing over the next couple weeks. I think it's very relaxing. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. 
Yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Oh, uh, I mean, <laughs> just thank you so much for, for this opportunity. And yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for being on the podcast and have a great week. Thank Bye. You. Bye.